So a couple Sundays ago, I gave you this illustration, this visual, uh, which helps us understand uh, the difference between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We said that the gift of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, is like you uh, connecting to a water source that already exists. Right? It's like you calling the water company, and they come in and they install their service. There's running water in your unit already, in your house already. All you have to do is pay the bills, install some things, and you're good to go. And we also said that uh, it's one thing for you to have access to the Spirit. It's another thing for you to actively fill your life with the Spirit. We said that you have to remove all the barriers. You have to open up those faucets. You have to uh, intentionally make yourself available to the work of the Spirit to experience the filling of God's Spirit. And there's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, and he said this, On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, our passage today, this incident was like a mayor of the city installing a new water system. Now everyone has running water into their homes. Now everyone uh, has um, access to this water uh, as long as they come into this village, come into this city. And regardless of their country, age, they have access to this wonderful source of blessing and satisfaction. So Acts 2 is, is pivotal. Acts 2 is crucial because we know that we need the filling of the Spirit. In order to have the filling of the Spirit, we need, we have, we need to have access to the Spirit and Acts chapter 2 is basically Jesus putting down the pipes in the city. And he's laying out a plan where there's running water all over the city. And as long as you are part of this city, as long as you are part of the kingdom of God, as, you are, as long as you are a heavenly citizen, you have access to this resource in the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at this passage. A lot of times when people talk about this particular passage, they talk about what is not true of this passage, what is not continuing in our day today. People are uh, sometimes afraid and scared to talk about this passage, but I believe with all my heart that it is impossible to understand really the work of Christ apart from the coming of the Spirit. And so we're going to ask three simple questions. What happens on the Pentecost? Also, what does it mean, all the things that we see? What does it mean? And what should we do with this? So we're going to talk about the event of the Pentecost, the explaining of the Pentecost, and the ongoing effect of the Pentecost. Okay, the event, the explanation, and the ongoing effect of the Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So let's dive in. First, the event of the Pentecost. It says in verse 1, When the day of the Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So they are the disciples. We know this because in Acts 1, when Jesus, after his resurrection, he spent 40 days with the disciples, speaking of the kingdom of God. And the disciples are asking, when will you restore your kingdom on earth? And Jesus says, well, it's, it's not for you to know the time or the season, but for you, wait on the Holy Spirit. I want you to go out, be a witness, to, to make disciples of all nations. But before you go, remember that you have to wait that you have to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes to you because when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be empowered to be my witness. First in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gives his disciples a mission, but the way that they're going to execute this mission is by waiting on the Spirit of God. And so they're waiting, they're waiting, they're anticipating. And finally, in today's passage, as they are gathered um, 
anticipating the work of the Holy Spirit, we see that something crazy happens. Now, the Pentecost is one of the three uh, major festivals of Israel. It's a big deal. It's 50 days after the Passover. The word Pentecost actually means 50. And so you see that the Passover, the biggest festival for the Jews, the day where they celebrated really the, the exodus, how God saved them from slavery, uh, that event, that holiday is deeply connected to this event called the Pentecost. It's also a day where they celebrated the harvest. And so you see after 50 days, you know, Jesus died on the cross during the Passover, and now it's been 50 days. Now they're celebrating the Pentecost. And so we see just as the Passover and the Pentecost are deeply connected, they're inseparable, we see that the crucifixion and the coming of the Spirit are inseparable. Those two go hand in hand. And so on the Pentecost, when everyone is gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this this feast, we see in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So people are gathered as they are praying, as they are worshiping. They hear something. It's the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now, that's the first thing that we see on the day of the Pentecost. The first event is the sound. Now, it doesn't say that there was literal wind that was blowing in the house. That would have been pretty chaotic. But there was a sound. Something audibly was hitting the disciples, right? Luke, he's a physician. Like, he's a well-educated man. He knows science. He knows how to describe certain things. But at this point, it seems like he's struggling to describe this event. All he could say, it kind of sounds like a mighty rushing wind, maybe like a hurricane. The sound is pretty overwhelming. It's pretty intense. I think he's also using this imagery of wind so that he can point to the fact that this is the work of the Spirit because we know that the the word for the Spirit in Hebrew and in Greek can be translated both as the Spirit but also as wind, as as breath. And that's why in John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, how can you be born again? Well, it's like the work of the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes, but you can feel the wind at that moment. Same is true about the spirit. You can't control the spirit. The spirit is like the wind. And so you have the sound like mighty rushing wind. Something is telling you that that the Holy Spirit is arriving, and then you see the sight. After the sound, you see the sight of divided tongues that appear to be on fire. So fiery tongues. It says in verse 3, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And that, that's quite an imagery, right? I mean, I, I try to picture this in my head. Like, okay, I, I can understand people being on fire on their heads. They have these kind of small fires. But that, it's not just a fire, but fiery tongues. Like, it's, it's divided tongues. Like, I don't know what that looks like even. And so I don't know how to describe this. It's super weird. But do you know that when the Jews, when they saw this imagery, when they see fire, there's one thing that comes to their mind. It's the very presence of God. Because throughout the Old Testament, when God wanted to make himself visible to his people, quite often he used the imagery of fire. We see this in Genesis 15, when Abraham is making a covenant with God. God, he sets all these animals aside and he makes a covenant by walking through that aisle. And as he's walking through that aisle, it says that he appeared as a flaming torch. It says in Exodus 3 that when Moses first encountered God, God was a burning bush. It says in Exodus 19, when the people of God, they left Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, what they saw was a mountain on fire. 
that literally there was smoke and fire everywhere. They were overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence, his holiness. And we see in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah is fighting uh, all these prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. We see that the way that God answers Elijah's prayer is through fire. So over and over again, you see that fire is connected to the very visible presence of God. And I think that's what's going on in Acts chapter 2. You see God's presence made visible among people. And what's interesting is that this fire is not just above certain individuals, not just the 11 disciples, but among everyone who believes. You have everyone who was praying, who was anticipating the gift of the Holy Spirit. They have this fiery thing on top of their head, which is like a divided tongue. And so these people are experiencing something supernatural. Now, one thing that we should notice is this. You have individuals on fire with the very presence of God. That means they're filled with God's presence. Notice how this happens. They are waiting, they're anticipating, but notice this is not happening, happening in private, but this is a public gathering. When God's people are gathered together, that's when individuals are experiencing this overwhelming sense of, of God's presence. I think it's in our natural tendency for us, in our sin, that we want to isolate from people. We don't want to deal with people. We want to just do things on our own. It's more comfortable for us. But the Bible tells us over and over again, if you want to experience the life that Jesus has for you, you need a gospel community, that you need to be with people. It's one thing to set one log on fire, right? Uh, if you set one log on fire separately, it might burn for a little bit, but the fire is not going to be as intense, and also it's not going to last that long. But when you put together multiple logs, a lot of wood together, what happens is the fire gets really big, and it's going to burn for quite a while. And you put more logs on in it, it's going to burn even more so. And so the way that you stay hot for God, the way that you can be passionate about the Lord and not have up and downs, one of the best ways that you can do that is actually investing yourself in a gospel community, making yourself available to the people of God to anticipate the work of the Holy Spirit. It says in, in verse 4 that all were filled with the Holy Spirit, but this is where things get really interesting. It says, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here... We have first the sound of the mighty rushing wind. We have the sight of divided, fiery tongues. And then we have people speaking in different languages, languages that they've never spoke before. And we know that these are audible languages, understandable languages. These are not made-up languages. Someone is not repeating Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola all the time. But this is literally people speaking a different language that people can fully understand. We see that starting from verse 5, that at this moment, there are a lot of people in the nations that were gathered in Jerusalem. And, and they're wondering what's going on because they hear their language. They hear in the corner someone crying out, Chio, Chio. Like they, they're hearing all these different languages, and it's like, what's happening? Like they're hearing Chinese, they're hearing Korean, they're hearing all these different languages. And they say in verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, this kind of shows you how they look down on the Galileans, right? 
Like they're saying they're a bunch of fishermen, like uneducated. Like they live in the countryside. What do they know, right? And yet they are speaking in these different languages. And, and that's something that someone who is well-equipped, educated, formally trained, they will be able to do. Like they're expecting these Galileans to simply speak in Aramaic. Maybe if they have a good chance, they would speak in a little bit of Greek. But here... They are speaking in audible languages. You can understand these languages. Now, I think there's a place for private speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. The Bible tells you that is for your personal prayer time, uh, not for the edification of the church. You have to have a translator if you want to use it for the church. Um, but I don't think that's what's being addressed here. In Acts chapter 2, we are talking about real, kind of real languages here. And I can't tell you how, how often I pray this prayer. God, give me an Acts chapter 2 moment, right? Anytime you're taking foreign languages, even when you're taking an English test, like you, you, you speak English and yet you're praying, God, give me an Acts chapter 2 moment when all of a sudden everything I read, I'll, it'll make, I'll make sense of, I'll speak in a flawless way. God, give me an Acts chapter 2 moment so I can all of a sudden speak this incredible language that I can communicate the gospel for your glory. Now, every time I pray that prayer, didn't happen. Uh, and I kind of understand why. The more and more you read this text, you you understand what's going on. It says in verse 11, uh, when these people, they're noticing all these different dialects, it says that, uh, verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So it wasn't that these people were just speaking different languages. It's the content of these languages that, that is quite amazing. That these disciples being filled with the Spirit were declaring the praises of God the mighty works of God, the greatness of God in different languages. And so everyone is so amazed. It says in verse 12 that all were amazed and perplexed, confused. Some said, what does this mean? Verse 13, some were mocking people in a way that, are you drunk, right? Like, are people doing this because they had too much wine? And so everyone is so confused. And so if you're confused at this point, that's totally okay because you're just like the people in this story. And this is a word for you. People are wondering, what does this all mean? Like, the sound of the rushing wind, the imagery of fiery tongues, and people speaking in different dialects, different languages that they never spoke before. So those are the events of the Pentecost. Clearly, something supernatural is happening at this moment, and you're wondering, what does this all mean? Well, you don't have to wonder uh, and ponder on that question because Peter stands up and explains exactly what this means, and that's where we move into the second portion of this this message the explaining of the pentecost the explaining of the pentecost now that we looked at the three events of the pentecost the explaining of the pentecost um now peter when he stands up he's not giving a typical sunday sermon um you know that because his sermon is quite short uh unlike my sermons uh we also know that uh peter he's not just preparing the sermon in advance it's not like he was studying this a certain text and he was like okay i'm going to deliver this message on this day no he's simply answering a question like the people are raising this question what does this all mean like i'm so confused with all the stuff that i'm seeing that's going on and so he's simply answering a question he's having a dialogue with these people and notice in verse 15 the first thing that he clarifies is that these people are not drunk i know this because it's the third hour of the day it's 9 a.m now I understand there's some people who are drunk at 9 a.m. today, but most likely in Jesus' time, that was very, very unusual to be drunk that early in the day. So that's out of the picture. So what does this mean? How do we make sense of these different events? Peter says two things. Peter stands up and he says, I have two points that I want to make. The first point is, 
This is the fulfillment of God's promise. The fulfillment of God's promise. It says in verse 16, Peter quoting from Joel chapter 2. He says, um, verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 10, uh, verse 18, Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. If you don't know scripture, this looks really, really weird. But what Peter is saying is if you understand scripture, and by the way, he's speaking to mainly Jews and Gentiles who are aware of the Old Testament. He's saying that this is a massive fulfillment of God's promise that you see throughout the Old Testament. A massive fulfillment. This is something that you guys were looking forward to. This is the promise that was spoken by the prophet Joel where it said that the day of the Lord is coming when God is going to pour out his spirit. This is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 when the prophet Ezekiel said that one day God will not just put his spirit on you, he will put his spirit inside of you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, but it is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in John chapter 14. Verse 16, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper, someone who will lead you to all truth, and he will be with you forever. You see, over and over again, Jesus spoke of this moment. He said, wait on the Holy Spirit. God is going to give you this incredible gift in the Holy Spirit, and finally it is here. That's why in other places, Paul, he says, Ephesians 1, Galatians 3, that this is the promised Holy Spirit. This is not just the Holy Spirit. This is the promised Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? It's important because it tells you that God is faithful, that you can trust his promises, that he delivers on his promises, that he's not just telling you one thing and then he's saying, psych, the next thing, but he's telling you that you can bank on his promises. So Peter is pointing to the Old Testament. He's saying, this is not a coincidence. This is happening under the plan of God. The, number two, number, the second point he makes is this. It's an invitation for salvation, an invitation for salvation. After speaking of the prophet Joel, he says, he continues to quote Joel chapter 2. It says, And I will show wonders, in verse 19, in the heavens above and signs and on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to, be, to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great uh, and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. After explaining that this is something that was prophesied in scripture that was promised by God, he says, this is an invitation for you to believe. That who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the rest of the passage, the rest of Peter's um, preaching or, or the rest of the Peter's uh, message is basically, this is Jesus. Like he presents Jesus in a very simple yet profound way. He says, Jesus was the one who was crucified. He was the one who was buried. He was the one who defeated death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He is now up with the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the King of the kings and Lord of lords. And it says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you were yourselves known. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. God raised him up. He's speaking about the crucifixion, 
the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The reason why I'm reading so much scripture is because I don't think I can do a better job articulating what Jesus has done and who he is than Peter. At the end of the day, he says, this is the one you crucified, the Lord and Savior, the Christ. And so you see the events of the Pentecost, you see the explaining of the Pentecost. And now the question is, so what does this mean for us? How is this relevant for us? This happened 2,000 years ago. But how do we know that this is relevant for our lives? Now, one thing that is clear is that the Holy Spirit, when he comes down to earth in Acts chapter 2, he doesn't go back up. He comes down and he stays. And so the same spirit is working in our lives. Now, we're not going to see another Acts 2 moment because we said that this is installing the whole water system. And so you don't have to reinstall the whole water system as long as the system is not broken. And if God is the one who installed the water system, it's not broken. But you also see that the same spirit is working in a very similar way in every single one of our lives. So the ongoing effects of the Pentecost, of the coming of the spirit. Four things I want you to know about the Holy Spirit. Number one is this. The spirit empowers us to speak of the gospel boldly and effectively. The Spirit empowers us to speak of the gospel boldly and effectively. Now, I don't know about you, but I get afraid when I speak of the gospel. Uh, that might be surprising uh, for a pastor to say. Like, I, I said this many times before. One time we were at a mission trip. One of our sixth graders come up to me as we are going out to share the gospel in Paris. And he says, Pastor, I want to be a, a pair with you. Why? And I said, oh, I guess, you know, you need some extra help, I, I, I said. And he's like, no, I want to see you fail. Like, as you're sharing the gospel, I want to see you struggle. I want to see you fail. And I got nervous. Like, I'm like, what if this person doesn't respond properly? Like, I'm telling you, it's nervous because you're telling someone in their face, you're a sinner. Like, you're helpless. The only solution that you have in your life is Jesus Christ. That's, that's a hard pitch right there. But the Spirit empowers us to speak of the gospel boldly and courageously and effectively. Now, we see this all throughout the book of Acts, but especially in this chapter, you just think about Peter, who he was just a few weeks ago. It's literally been only, only 50 days since the Passover. A couple weeks ago, I want to remind you that Peter was the one who was standing in front of a fire. Right next to him was this little girl, little slave girl. And as Jesus was being mocked, as he was arrested and people are saying all these things to Jesus, this little girl comes up to Peter and says, I think I saw you before. Weren't you with Jesus? And Peter says, no, absolutely not. I do not know who he is. Three times he denied Jesus, and yet just a few weeks later, we see him in Acts chapter 2, and he was courageously sharing the gospel. What happened in those few weeks? Well, two things happened. Number one, is the empty tomb. He saw the tomb was empty. He saw that Jesus defeated death. And so there was no question in his mind that Jesus was worthy of all praise. But number two is he experienced the filling of the Spirit. He was now filled with the Spirit. It wasn't him who was controlling his life anymore. It wasn't his fear and his emotions that was driving his actions and his words, but it was the Holy Spirit controlling Peter. And when that happened, at this moment, standing in front of people 
who literally crucified Jesus a few weeks ago. He's standing in front of the same crowd, the Jews, in Jerusalem, and he says, the Jesus that you crucified, he's risen, he is Lord, he's the Messiah, and you have to believe in him. The Holy Spirit empowers Peter to speak in a very bold way. Peter was simply a fisherman in Galilee. He didn't have any formal education. Now, a lot of times when someone comes up to you and asks, hey, I want to learn more about Christianity, more about the church, I actually want to learn about Jesus. Like, that's when you go like, whoa, 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 that's really scary, right? Because now I have to explain about Jesus, right? I can bring that person to church. Uh, Maybe I should call up my pastor and have that pastor explain about Jesus. Uh, But notice, if you believe in Acts chapter 2, you don't have to do that. When someone is interested in Jesus, you can explain Jesus to them. You can be a witness. You don't have to grab a pastor. You don't have to grab your teacher. If you have the Word of God and Spirit of God working in your life, the Spirit of God is going to give you the courage and the words to effectively speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have everything that we need to be a faithful witness for the mission of God. You know, in Acts chapter 2, Peter was not an effective communicator. He was not a man with charisma. He was simply a man that was filled with the Spirit who relied on God's word. And that's exactly how we ought to live our lives and share the gospel to others. So the Spirit empowers us to live boldly and courageously for the gospel. Number two is this. The Spirit exalts Jesus. The Spirit exalts Jesus. When Peter is full of the Spirit, all he speaks of is Jesus. He doesn't talk about his past. He doesn't talk about his failures. All he speaks of is Jesus. In verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, and then he talks about the life of Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus was delivered up to the cross. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When the Spirit is working in your life, you begin to speak of this Jesus, the true Jesus. One practical way that we can know that we are living in the Spirit is this. You are not that interested of speaking of of your own thoughts or of your own minds. You're not just always talking about your burdens and your life, but you're speaking about Jesus. That's the difference that the Spirit makes in your life. Because people who are living in sin, who are so self-centered, right? And so all they could care about and all they can think of and articulate is, is the things of themselves, But when you are full of the Spirit, your life revolves around Jesus. I mean, what more do you want to say? All the things that you say and you think, it's about Jesus. So you're saturated with the Word of God for the glory of God. So the Spirit exalts Jesus. We also see the Spirit convicts us of our sins and leads us into repentance. The Spirit convicts us of our sins and leads us into repentance. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I don't know if you have this type of moment when it feels like a dagger like just stabbed you in the heart, like something painful. And what's happening is the people, as they're hearing this sermon, this message, this, this, this uh, simply witnessing of, 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 of Jesus, they realize that they're in trouble because just a few weeks ago, they were the ones who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And yet they begin to see their sin. They begin to see that they are guilty before God they try to kind of hide all their sin and, and their unrighteousness underneath works and, and the law, and, and yet something is not right inside of them. They say that, that I can't deny it anymore. 
that I was an enemy of God and I don't want to live this way. And this is exactly the fulfillment of John 16, 8, where Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you've never been deeply convicted by your sin, then you have to pray for the work of the Spirit. If you think that you are a decent human being, that you have lived an okay life, that you're worthy of God's salvation and his grace, then you have never encountered the gospel in a way that the Spirit wants you to understand because the moment that you really understand the gospel, you begin to see that your problem of sin is so deep that there's nothing else that you need in your life than the grace, uh, the mercy of, of God. And so people, they're deeply cut into the heart and says in verse 37, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Like, at this point, what do we do? I have no idea. Like, we see things happening. We understand the message that this is the fulfillment of all those prophecies that exist, and we see also the depths of our sin. Like, we understand that, that we are doomed to die. Like, we are worthy of God's wrath and his judgment. So what do we do? They want to respond to, to, to this message, and, and Peter tells them exactly how they can respond to this message, and this is how you ought to respond to a message like this. It says in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this gift of the Holy Spirit is made available to everyone as long as that everyone is willing to repent and believe and publicly identify with Jesus in baptism. And he says in verse 41, it says in verse 41, so those who received his word, Peter's word on that day were baptized and they there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So one sermon, 3,000 people were saved. You see that the spirit is the one who convicts us of our sins. And the last thing that we see is the spirit is the one who forms this spirit-filled community. Spirit-filled community. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, all these different things are taking place. Now, when people are filled with the Spirit, they're not just enjoying life on their own. They're doing life together with other people who are filled with the Spirit. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the public teaching of God's Word. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, the partnership in the gospel. They broke bread together. They devoted themselves in prayer. We also see that they shared stuff together. There was a spirit of unity that exists. They were living in harmony. They cared about each other. It says in verse 46, they attended the temple together and they break, broke bread in their homes. In other words, they came to Sunday service and they attended life group and small group. Like, we get that, that f format from the Bible. And it says in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So the Spirit of God, when he is working in our lives, there is visible change that takes place place in a way that we are empowered to do the work of God's uh, kingdom and his ministry and his mission. But at the same time, we are driven to cling and connect with people who are like-minded. So don't live isolation. I know that it's a lot comfortable if you just have your own bubble, that no one can speak to you, that you think you can just live in your world where you're always right. But the Bible is encouraging us that we need one another. We need to be sharpened by one another. 
So the events of the Pentecost, the explaining of the Pentecost, we see the ongoing effects of the Pentecost, and now it is our turn to respond. I'll end with this one quote. A.W. Tozer, a well-known pastor and author, said this, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the early church, the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I think a lot of times because we are so fallen in our understanding of church, that we are all about programs and, and buildings and, and all these different things, and we love entertainment. One thing that is lacking in, in the church, and I think this is one reason why the church is struggling, is it's the Spirit of God. That's what's lacking in our church. That's what's lacking in our lives. But the good news is this. God is not stingy with His Spirit, that He says that if anyone is willing to ask, I'm willing to give. Like you see in Luke 11, when, when Jesus says, even a, a bad father, an evil father, knows how to give good gifts to, to his son. How much more would, you, would your heavenly father give you the very spirit, his spirit? So what we need more in our life, it's God's presence, his spirit, his word. As long as you have the word of God and the spirit of God with you, then you can do the work of God, that you can live for the mission of God. Every Christian is a missionary. It's just a matter of location, whether you serve overseas or you serve locally here. You see this incredible movement in the book of Acts, and all begins with us submitting to the work of the Spirit. So my prayer is that we would have an Acts 2 moment as individually and also collectively, that we be convicted of our sins, that we live in gospel harmony, that we would encourage one another to, to be saturated with Jesus Christ, that we bold and courageous when we are sharing the gospel, and when we do so, that we will see God work in our lives and through our lives. Amen? Let's pray.